Good to be with you today as we begin to study God's Word. I hope your, your heart is prepared as you have taken time to, to give and you've taken time to read the Word, you've taken time to pray and to sing that you might put Him in His rightful place and that we might be able to enjoy uh, together the teaching of the Word and assimilate what we've learned. If you could turn the lights on back there, guys, if you would, and if you have little ones through uh, all the way up through grade six, if you'd like them to be uh, in student ministries, they can be that now and they can be dismissed out to out to the foyer. God's plan for a healthy church, study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. It's a uh, joy to be uh, continuing that study. If you are here and you've not been here for this or it's been a while, uh, you might think, well, it's verse by verse. I won't know what they're talking about. Well, you will because the Lord guarantees that as you read his word, that you'll understand as you apply yourself with your heart. And so always be sure that as we go through the word verse by verse, you'll be blessed as he desires very much for you to be part of that. We, um, as a hymn writer, Frances Ridley Habergal, you are probably very familiar with her, uh, with her hymns. She wrote thousands of them. Several hundred have made it into hymn books over the years. But in her book, Kept for the Master's Use, uh, she writes, of ourselves, we have but little weight, no particular talents or position or anything else to put on the scale. Well, let us remember that again and again, God has shown that the influence of a very average life, when once really consecrated to him, may outweigh that of almost any number of merely professing Christians. It's a phrase we need to repeat over and over again. Because the church is full of the second one and very few of the first one. Of ourselves, we may have very little weight, and that really includes everyone no particular talent or position or anything else to put onto the scale. But let us remember that again and again, God has shown us the influence of a very average life when once really consecrated to him may outweigh that of almost any number of merely professing Christians. Such lives are like Gideon's 300, carrying not even the ordinary weapons of war, but only trumpets and lamps and empty pitchers by whom the Lord wrought great deliverance while he did not use the others at all. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. Last week we picked up in our study in verse 10, and in the following passages, verse 10 and on, we are able to see some very practical management instructions in relationship to giving in the form of principles and commands. What I'd like to do is have you turn in your copy of God's Word. I want to pick up in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7. I want to read all the way through verse 19, so... You find some written copy somewhere, and you can follow along with me. We're going to be in a number of places this week, and so I want you to, uh, uh, this, uh, this morning, so I want you to be able to, to follow along. They're very important places that you will need as you understand these things. Let's look at verse 7. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and in knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. Verse 8. I'm not speaking this as a command but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Verse 10, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to, desire to do it. Verse 11, But now finish doing it also, 
So that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. Verse 12, for if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Verse 13, for this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. Verse 14, at this present time, your abundance being the supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. Verse 15, as it's written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Verse 16, but thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. Verse 18, we have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. Verse 19, and not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work. Let's stop right there. We saw in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 8.10, we see, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. And we saw a number of principles last week, and we'll just, make, we just cover them because we just build on them today. First principle was New Testament giving is something you choose to do. How much you choose to give is between you and God, and the amount is not commanded. Very important. And we know that how we are going to manage what he's given us, uh, we're going to see, look at verse 10 again, the, the, the phrase that really helps us. In verse 10, I give my opinion in this matter, mark this, for this is to your advantage. So the question is, uh, what kind of advantage do you want? And the word advantage is for your blessing or for your benefit. So what benefit do you want? What blessing do you want? So that's Paul's focus. You're going to decide what you're going to do, and you're just going to decide that based on how you want the amount that you give to be blessed, whatever it is. So what's the amount you want the Lord to bless? What measuring cup will you use? What would you like to put into eternity to wait for you there? Or what kind of crop would you like to harvest? Uh, the amount is not mandated. And the verse 11 says, But now finish doing this also, uh, just as there was the readiness to desire to do it, there also may be the completion of it by your ability. And we noted then in New Testament giving, uh, is giving that is followed through and done. Systematic, regular, faithful. Paul confirms the responsibility to follow through. Not just to desire to do it, not just to think that you're going to do it, to be happy about doing it, but also to be single-minded about it. And that choosing comes from the heart. And good intentions really uh, mean very little if we continually vacillate. And then we saw in verse 10, it says, For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable, verse 12 rather, is it acceptable according to what a person has, and not according to what he does not have. And the idea there is God is aware of your circumstances. He's not asking you to give at a level that you can't reach. He's not happier with someone else who gives more than he is with you. Uh, the heart of, of that is that he's, is what he looks at, and, and he can work through a heart that is single-mindedly his, regardless of the resources, like Havergal observed. We don't bring much to the table anyway. But regardless of the resources, he can work through a heart that's all his. And he's looking for a life that places its trust and security in him. And then with giving, based on how you've been blessed, and we just do it, and then that becomes an example then, and that puts your obedience and your faith and your trust on display. So then in, uh, the next one then, whenever we have then, is the resource out of what we give. So that's the issue. 
You know, it, it, God is aware of your circumstances. He has provided a means for you to give uh, whatever you have. He isn't asking for a proportion of resources that he hasn't provided to you. And we've seen all along uh, to give as you're able, as you've been blessed. As If you have a lot, give in proportion. If you have a little, give in proportion. John, if you could turn this mic right here off. And we've seen that over and over again, which that's really the foundation uh, of all giving throughout the scriptures. It's, it's never the mouth that's the issue. It, it is always the heart that's the issue. And Jesus examines the gift, as we saw last time, and he's watching what goes on. He knows your resources. He knows your choices. And then Paul says, starting in verse 13, where we left off last time, for this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction. And the idea there is this, that the New Testament model of giving, it's not God's desire to impoverish those with much for it's not for the ease of others, he says, and for your affliction, but by way of equality at this present time, your abundance being the supply for their need, and their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. So New Testament giving is an economy then, we saw, where God sometimes gives extra to us that we can help others in an ongoing fluid manner. And, and it goes back and forth, and, and that is his intent. And he always gives just at the right time so that can be met. Those needs can be met. And those that have more than they need can provide for those that have less than they need. And, and it's not reducing all of those who have something down to nothing. It's not making sure everybody's even. It's, it's, uh, and it's also not just using the church as a prop for lazy habits. Now, there's another illustration that we didn't have time for last week. And I want you to look there. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Hold your finger here and turn to Galatians 6, 2, if you would. It's a very important passage for a number of reasons, but it certainly fits in our, as an illustration for what we're looking at and the responsibilities that we have, and it uses the one another's, and this is something that's important in the church. It's why you can't stay home and sit on the couch and have church, but um, one of the reasons, but the one another's are important, and we're going to see them here. Look at verse, chapter 6, verse 2. Paul says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something... When he's nothing, he deceives himself. Verse 4, but each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another, for each one, verse 5, will bear his own load. Look back at verse 2, if you would. And if you're a note taker, you can find this on the back of your bulletin. There's a couple observations I need you to make, and we looked at uh, 1 Timothy 6 yes, uh, last time, if you remember, kind of worked our way through as it applies to these passages. But you're going to see this is very parallel to the whole thing. And when you talk about burdens, you're not just talking about money. You're talking about all kinds of things that, that can help people. But it certainly includes what you give. And so it, it applies here in, in full. So number one, if there's a need, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Here's the sum of it. If there's a need and you can meet it, what? Meet it. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If there's a need and you can meet it, meet it. And, um, and this really sums up, and I think it's important, the law of Christ if you want to fulfill the law of Christ, what do you do? Very simple, beloved. Bear what? One another's burdens. In our, in our self-centered, narcissistic society on Facebook where we put 100,000 pictures of ourself and our Instagram, get your eyes off yourself and bear one another's burdens. That's the call. And if, when you do that, you fulfill the law of Christ. See? And everyone wants to know what the will of God is. And I try to mention this as we see it. Everybody wants to know what God wants me to do. How well I know the will of God, I, I, need, I have to make some decisions. And I always say, when people ask me that, let's start by doing the will of God that's already revealed to you. And this is one of those places. It's clearly stated. When you help, you're using the provision that God has provided to you to meet the needs of God's people. That's how you bear their burden. 
Everyone wants to say, you know, I love God. Everybody thinks that they love God well and all that kind of stuff. You know, 1 John 5, 3, you remember it? For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and what? His commandments are not burdensome. If you think you love God, to, then to the extent that you actually do what he says to do, that's how much you love God. It's not what you say. It's how you conform your life to do the things he said, even the hard things. You conform your life. You love God. It doesn't matter what you say about your love of God. It's, it's proven in how you conform to what the Word of God says. And then verse 3 says this. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. And again, that's everyone. Again, everyone is nothing. That's everybody's starting point. Any good that you have in you is Christ. So don't think, well, that doesn't apply to me because I am something, so I think I'm something. All right? If, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, when he's nothing, it applies to everyone. He deceives himself. So... More importantly, what we saw in 1 Timothy 6.17, don't be prideful about it. That's the issue. Don't think you're superior to someone else because you can bear their burden. That's the issue. 1 Timothy 6.17 said the same thing. Don't be haughty. Don't be self-assuming just because you have something and you can help somebody but be rich in good works and ready to share. So you can lay up life that is life indeed. So the idea is the same. Titus 3.13, we're going to look at this in a few minutes and then later on in a couple weeks more in depth. But Titus is tell, Paul is telling Titus, who's in Crete, he says this, he says, diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos. So Zenos and Apollos are coming through. They have some needs. And he said, help them on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. So don't just do the bare minimum. He goes, make sure that they have everything they need fully filled up for what they need to do. And then he says this, just by the way, Paul says to Titus, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, mark this, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. So it just adds to it. Not only are you going to meet the needs of Zenos and Apollos, we just need to be in a general mindset to meet pressing needs so you won't be unfruitful. So the other side is, if you're not looking to meet pressing needs or if you're not bearing somebody's burden or you're not being rich in good works and ready to share, you're not being fruitful, see? And so it doesn't put you in very good company. And so this is a very clear teaching from the Apostle Paul to Titus. And as part of the fruit of the Spirit, they're to bear one another's burdens, right? You don't want to be unfruitful, so jump in there and do the thing that you're supposed to do. And then Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 4, but each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. Number three, your ability to meet a need or bear a burden isn't judged by the deeds of others. So it's not relative. In other words, it's not, well, I'm doing a whole lot more than the average person at this church is doing. Okay, that's not the kind of statement that you want to make. That's precisely the opposite of what we're instructed to do. See, your ability to meet a need or bear a burden isn't judged by what other people do or don't do. Your to examine your own work, that just means in relation to, and this is going to sound very familiar to you, how you've been blessed, your sacrificial, generous, faithful use of what you have, your resources and your choices, God knows them both, and he knows then if you're being sacrificial and faithful and, and generous, and so you question yourself with the right questions about how you are using what's been loaned to you. That what's, that's what it means to examine your own work. And then it says, and then he'll have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone. In other words, then you can look back and place stock in God and how he's supplied all your needs and you have given him back out of what he's given richly and faithfully and uh, sacrificially. And then you'll understand that you're doing what the Lord wants you to do. And it'll be a confirmation in your own heart that you've conformed your life in such a way that it's doing exactly, you're doing exactly what you should do with what you have. And then it says, and not in regard to another. So in other words, not whether or not someone else is doing as much or as little as you are. And then, so that there is an advantage being taken and, and an environment of just taking happening in the church, 
He says this, in the the last verse for us today, verse 5, for each one will bear his own load. And and that's the idea that in the church there's supposed to be a balance. Um, And the idea is that whenever you have a generous church that gives to those in need, you have the danger of promoting laziness. But in the church, we don't want to just create an environment where some people just take and other people are giving. Everybody's supposed to be giving, see? And the greater or lesser amount is not, it doesn't matter. It matters what the heart is, see? And as you and it's not just willy-nilly whatever grace prompted giving. It's in relation to a proportion of how you've been blessed. So, each one is to work hard so they can be part of the provision over time. And that takes us right back uh, to our passage, doesn't it? Paul says that. Uh, and he says, in case you're wondering about this tendency, then back to our passage. Look back at 2 Corinthians 8.14. You turn back there. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need that there may be equality. And they only, that's only going to happen if everybody's pulling their own weight and doing what they should do, see? You know, and everybody bearing their own burden, of course, has a lot of application. It certainly reflects back into Ephesians as we see that model of the church and each, what every joint supplies. Everybody doing something in the church, using their spiritual gifts. That's how the church grows. People are plugged in and doing those kinds of things. But the fact of the matter, it, it really applies to what we're talking about right now. So we can't exclude it. So there's, there's always going to be an opportunity to give to someone a need, but in the church we have a balance. We take care of one another. We work hard, which is the primary way that God provides what you need. And then Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, 4, 9. He says, now the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. So he's talking to a Macedonian church. And this is a church that's already demonstrated their love by faithful giving to people they don't even know. So now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and it's obvious in all that you've been doing. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel all the more, and to make it your ambition, mark this, to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, verse 12, so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. You see this? It's always the same, isn't it? Even in need, even in difficulty, which we know they were in, and they, they were probably in need of some help themselves, and Paul didn't want to ask them to contribute to the offering, but they did. He just says, listen, just make sure you're working with your hands and you're minding your own business just as we commanded you, and then you'll behave properly towards outsiders, and you won't have any need. Why? Because the church is going to help meet those needs, and you're bearing your own burden. So these all go together. Bear one another's burdens. Fulfill the law of Christ. Work hard yourself so you can bear your own burdens and help others with theirs. It's very familiar now. Teaching throughout the church. Very similar teaching all the way through. And then, and then in 2 Corinthians 8.15, Paul says, you know, this economy that God has set up in the church, take care of one another in, in a very fluid and ongoing manner, illustrated by God's example with his people during their 40-year wandering. Because that's why he says, look back at 2 Corinthians 8.15. As it's written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. And that's a very profound statement, and it's an important statement for us. And we're going to look there. Took, turn in your, put your finger here. Turn to Exodus chapter 16. Will you do that? And the principle, if you're writing it down, New Testament giving, when it's done in the way that Scripture prescribes, that's going to provide for all the needs within the body, all of them. In this church, in other New Testament churches, and New Testament churches all the way back to the first church, when it's done this way, the Lord has put in the church the people who can meet the needs of the church, both physically and monetarily and spiritually. Okay? There are, there are people here who can meet those needs. You don't have to look outside to unredeemed people 
and to other things to meet the needs in the church. Now look at, uh, look at Exodus chapter 16. Will you do that? This is a great passage, and I, I think it's profound that Paul pulls from here. So I'm going to read it, and it's a long read, but the, the context here is, is that the Lord has led Israel into the wilderness. He's providing for their needs and, and teaching them to rely on him for security. Now, does that sound familiar? That's precisely what he's been doing all along for everyone in every age, right? He provides for our needs and teaches us to rely on him for our security. And, and it's, it's, that's not just an ancient lesson he wanted his people from long ago to learn, is it? He's still in the business of teaching that now for the same reasons and with the same ingredients, okay? Now, so look there in verse 1, and we're going to read this and just make some comments all the way through, and I think it'll be enriching for you. So verse 1 of chapter 16 says, Then they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. So they're about a month and a half into the journey. Now, it should only have been an 11-day journey to begin with, but we won't talk about that, okay? This is going to take them a while. It's going to take them a while to learn the lessons God wants them to learn. So they're about a month and a half in. Verse 2, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel, verse 3, said to them, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full, for you brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Nice. So at this point, they'd probably eaten what they'd brought with them. And the idea is, you know, they left Egypt with a lot. And when they exited, it was a huge group of people, carts laden with stuff. How do we know that? Well, the scripture says earlier that the Lord instructed them to ask their masters for all that they wanted, uh, for clothing, for food, for gold and jewels. And in that way, it says uh, Israel, Israel um, plundered them. So we know they had a lot, and they came out. So they're a month and a half in. They've probably eaten from those stores, their, their cattle and their sheep, the stores of those have gone down. They know that they're not going to be able to keep on going this way. They're probably low. And now, of course, this is beside the point that everything they had up to that point had been provided by the Lord. So they didn't have anything apart from what he provided for them. They're wishing they could go back and live under the bondage of, of slavery instead of relying on the Lord who'd already provided so much for them and shown himself so clearly. And, and in, st- in case of you know, having some chronological snobbery here, it's important to know uh, that we're precisely this way. Okay, we, we have a very difficult time learning to rely on the Lord and we continually go back and grumble. And if the Lord's taking us through a tight time, it's not unusual for us to have a hard, a bad attitude about it and wonder why it's always like this. So don't think somehow that we've escaped the same attitude. You're going to see the exact same things in our own hearts here in, the, in this group of people, which is precisely why Paul reaches back and pulls this into the church age. So look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day uh, that I mark this, may test them, whether or not they will walk in my instructions. Now, that's not unusual for us to see, is it? He's going to provide for their needs, and in doing that, it's going to become what? A stewardship. If the Lord gives you something, and then he says, I'm going to test you and see if you're going to rely on me, then it all radically becomes a stewardship. He's going to see if you'll obey what he says. And that's not unusual, right? Because that's precisely how it works now. Whatever he gives you, it's not just willy-nilly whatever. There are some accountability things that go along with that, and the Lord desires for us to know them and to do them. And we don't know that he isn't testing us in any given time with a lot or a little to make sure we're going to do precisely that. God is absolutely consistent. So here's what he says. Look at verse 5. On the sixth day, 
when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So he's going to give them daily. And then he says, listen, there's some rules connected to this. Uh, so it's not just whatever. You know, on the sixth day, I want you to gather twice as much. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, at evening, you'll know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you'll see, verse 7, the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? So Moses said, verse 8, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but they're against the Lord. So they were grumbling about the leadership, but ultimately their grumbling was against God. And, and Moses makes that clear to them. In verse 9, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumblings. In verse 10, It came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In other words, again, see, I will provide what you need, and you should respond by being thankful and give me thanks and regard me as worthy of honor. It's, it's precisely the same thing. You know, when you receive what you receive, the Lord isn't unhappy that you may have more than you need. He wants us to give thanks for it. He wants us to be rich in good works and ready to share. It's not a sin to have more than you need anymore than it's a sin to have just what you need. The fact of the matter is God is looking for us to be acknowledging him as the supplier of all that we have and not relying, somehow thinking we're relying on our own ingenuity and, and ability that we've provided what we have. He gives us everything and he tests us that way. Be thankful to me. Give me thanks for it. Verse 13. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. Verse 14. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, all the surface of the wilderness was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost of the ground. Verse 15. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It's the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Verse 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man, as much as he should eat, and you shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. So, in today's vernacular, about nine and a third dry cups of what would be equivalent to flour per person per day. And he said, just take enough for the one day, and then on the sixth day, you can take enough for two days. So it's very simple rules. So how'd they do? Verse 17, the sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little, Verse 18, and when they measured it with the omer, so mark this, this is the verse that Paul pulls into our passage. He who had gathered much had no excess, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. So the idea here is, and the one Paul is drawing on as an illustration, each person is out gathering and doing what God said to do, but when everyone got back to their tents, there was the right amount of manna for everybody. So God provided it, and he was on the other end too. So he was on the supply end, and the demand end, so whatever was demanded at the end and was needed, he, he covered that, and he also covered the first part, which was he provided it, and that's exactly what we saw last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, right? That he has provided seed for the sower and bread for food. He's on both ends of that whole thing. So God provided it, he's on the other end too, and apparently some uh, may have been able to gather a little more or a little less on any certain day, but when they got back to camp, everybody had what they needed. And that is precisely the idea that goes on in the church, see? 
There was enough to meet everybody's need. Now, verse 19, Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until morning. Verse 20, but they did not listen to Moses, and some left part of it until morning. So this is continuous disobedience with what he's provided, and a very simple rules governing it. In other words, God says, you know, trust me, I'll provide what you need, but what did some of them do? Well, they hoarded it selfishly and set it aside, undoubtedly, to take care of their needs for tomorrow. Precisely what we do. And that, you know, and listen, I want to make sure it's clear. It's not a bad thing in and of itself. We know that the Lord has desired for us not to consume everything that comes in. As we talk about money, we're supposed to set some aside for the future. I mean, we're not talking about this overall universal rule for everything. But when God specifically says to his people, rely on me for each day so you'll learn to worship me and thank me and obey me, and then you do the opposite of that, that's a bad thing, okay? And I think you can see that. Now, look what, what happens at the end of verse 20. So many didn't listen to Moses, and some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul, and Moses was angry with them. And verse 21, they gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat, but when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Now, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, and that's precisely what the Lord told them to do. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, oh, they gathered two this day, so even the leaders weren't listening that closely. Hey, Moses, they gathered two. Yes, that's right. That's what the Lord said. This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you'll boil. And all that's left over put aside and be kept until morning. So they put it aside, verse 24, until morning, as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Verse 25, now Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day the Sabbath there will be none. And it came about on the seventh day, of course, that some people went out to gather, but they didn't find any. And so you just every simple rule, every single thing that governed this very simple supply for the people, some didn't follow it. Verse 28, then the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place and let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. Verse 30, so the people rested on the seventh day and the house of Israel named it manna and it was like coriander seed white and it's taste like wafers with honey. And then Moses said, verse 32, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer full of it be kept throughout your generations that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations as the Lord commanded Moses. So Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept and the sons of Israel ate the manna for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land and they ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And just as a footnote, you remember that he, he told Aaron to put some of that manna in a jar and I fully expect that when Israel finds the ark, which they will, that there will be a jar in there along with the rod that budded of Aaron and the testimony of the Lord sitting in there unspoiled. I fully expect that to be the case, and that'll be pretty cool to see that. But this is the example we have from the past. And God is still teaching these lessons today because Paul pulls this out of the past and places it right in the New Testament church for you and I to see. So it's relevant that in the church... We're supposed to heed him and manage what he gives like he says to do it. And, and, and just to clarify, we're not wandering in the wilderness, okay? And God isn't making resources drop to the ground for us to pick up, although you could say, theoretically, that everything you have has been dropped in your lap, 
right? Because you didn't acquire anything apart from the Lord's goodness to you. Whether it's your ability with numbers or your ability with, with your hands as a craftsman or whatever it is, the fact of the matter is it's all from the Lord dropped into our lap. But he's not, in general, as we see this, as he literally dropped it right out of the sky. It's not happening. So we're not walking around picking stuff up. And he hasn't forbidden us to have more than we need. He made that clear when his people arrived in the promised land. They said, you're going to eat food to the full. You're going to be fully satisfied with everything I've given you. And then he gave the, the, the uh, laws concerning the, the acquiring of, of uh, money. And he, gave, he had uh, required giving, 23 and a third percent, right? Make sure you give some to the priest. Make sure you give some uh, to the people who don't have anything. And make sure you set them aside uh, a third per year. So we see this. And, and we understand it in the New Testament, it, it, isn't, it isn't wrong to have more than, you ha- more than you need. And the Lord isn't trying to impoverish everybody who has more than they need and, and uh, uh, impoverish you for somebody else's enrichment, see. We're to work and we're to save and give some of what we have generously and sacrificially and faithfully and be single-minded about it. That's, that's the rules that govern us. So we want to be careful that we don't just disregard that just like the people did because we're no different than in that respect, see. That's the accountability God's required for, to govern the free will giving, taking care of each other in a fluid, ongoing manner. And, and with all of his provision, then, Paul says this, and he makes this change, and this is a really, it goes to just very specific management issues. Look back to chapter 8, verse 16. You can flip out of, um, out of Exodus. So 2 Corinthians eight sixteen. So, Paul says all of that, and then you can, say, you can see him kind of shift the focus. He wants the church to think about some other things, and he says in verse 16, but thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. So Paul has an earnestness for the church in Corinth to conform to this type of giving, to conform the way they manage what they have uh, so that's uh, pleasing to the Lord, and, and Titus has the same earnestness. Verse 17, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. Now, I want to set the stage for this because this is important, I think, to, to understand why Paul is talking about this. Paul's a leader. He's really larger than life in many respects. Um, I've told you before, you know, I, when I think about Paul, I think about him looking down his glasses and saying, all right, Parker, get your act together. And I think that's, that's, how Paul, that's how people think about the Apostle Paul. A tremendous theologian, you know, 70% of the New Testament he wrote. He understood God's purposes and plan for redemption. He, trained, he was trained and tutored by Jesus himself in the three years after his conversion. So there's a lot to Paul. Um, Jesus had a plan for him, a very hard road for him to walk, and some big tasks ahead for him and with a lot of suffering. And, and he said that on the, on the Damascus Road. So uh, he's the apostle, if you will, after the fact, from a human perspective, late to the game. Uh, but he understood God's purposes with regard to the church. And so he is this unique person unto himself. And Titus, however, who's mentioned here, uh, this is a guy who served the church. He wasn't a visionary like Paul. He didn't lead all the churches. He wasn't an apostle. So he was led, likely led to faith by Paul. I think when, he, when Paul says to Titus, my true child in the common faith, I think that indicates that Paul probably led Titus to faith. He was a Gentile, like most of the people in the Corinthian church. He was responsible and, and uh, respected. Paul addresses him in Titus chapter 1, verse 4, and says, To Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So uh, Titus is responsible. 
He apparently understands what's supposed to go on. He's respected by the churches. He's going to go around to all these new churches. And out of their group, he's going to pick people who are elders who are going to lead. And there's some, there's some requirements that concern that. So he knew what the church needed. Paul left him to do it. And later in the letter, Paul says to him, and this connects to our passage, when we just read just a minute ago, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, meet pressing needs, so they will not be unfruitful. So Paul says to Titus, who's in Crete, I expect you to teach the church. They should be ready to meet uh, meet um, pressing needs and that, so that they won't be unfruitful. And so back in chapter 7, Paul says about him uh, to the church in Corinth, he says, and you remember this, uh, Paul, Paul sent Titus with much, much fear and trepidation uh, to carry a sorrowful letter and to, to talk to the church. Paul had done all he could do. There wasn't anything else Paul could do spiritually or physically to make the church change. He sends Titus with much prayer. Paul is worried about him, of course. That's the whole transition into the Macedonian church. And Paul goes to try to find Titus. You remember all this. We looked at it. But he says this, for this reason, we've been comforted. So he finally sees Titus, and he talks to Titus about what happened in the Corinthian church when Titus went. And besides our comfort, we rejoice even more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be true. In other words, he, he told Titus, listen, I've got a lot of fear and trepidation. But I think if you go, they're going to have read the letter. They're going to they're uh, uh, repent and they're going to turn from what they've been doing. And I have, I have very uh, large confidence in that. And we saw that, that heart of a pastor who desires always the best for people and gives them the instruction and then hopes that they'll change. And, and that's, that's Paul. And since Titus, he says, I think they're going to change. Go and, go and do what you can do. And his affection then, it says of Titus, abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. So he, go, he went to the church in Corinth. It's not the first time he's been there. They embraced him with respect. They knew he was a godly man, and they followed his leadership. So then when we read in our passage in 8, verse 16, but thanks be to God, and Paul brings Titus into this conversation, which just seems so strange to me if you don't think through what's going on here. He says, but thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he's gone to you of his own accord. Why is Paul pouring Titus into this conversation? I think this is it. The Apostle Paul has, has guided this church in Corinth. He's the first one to pastor it. Stayed with them 18 months. He taught them, and they rebelled against him, and they were very disrespectful to him, and said all kinds of harmful things to him, followed false teachers, did all this kind of stuff, and they've come back around. But there's always that idea that in the back of their mind, kind of with the previous passages we just looked at, that, you know, Paul, you know, is this for us to be impoverished and them to be enriched? And Paul, Paul preempts that question because he knows they're going to say, well, you know, Paul, you're a Jew, and they're a Jew, you know, and that's why you're taking up the collection, and you're just going to impoverish all of us, and you just make them wealthy. And, you know, you can see that. And so Paul preempts this other thing here, and just in this way, he pulls Titus, and he just says this. You know, Titus, being all for it, helps confirm to you that this is the right thing to do. And, 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 the, and the, I think the, the principle we can take from it is this. A, a plurality of leaders helps to insulate the church from error and should instill confidence in these kinds of things as it relates to New Testament giving. There's more than just one person saying the same thing. And Titus fulfilled this role for Paul. And there'll be some others, and we're going to see that in a bit. Because when it says, he not only accepted our appeal, so in other words, we told him about what was going on, and he was like, yes, yes, that's, that's right. But being himself very earnest, he says, I, I need to get on this. This is the right thing to do. He has gone to you, here it is, of his own accord. Titus accepted Paul's leadership, of course. It, it, it doesn't say, you know, 
I told him to come to you and he came to you tell you to, you know, fork it up. That's not what he, that's not what he did. Now, he went to his own accord. Now, if you remember, you know, it appears he probably brought the first letter to them. That's the lost epistle. We talked about that. He brought 1 Corinthians to them. He brought the sorrowful letter to them. All no doubt because Paul asked him to do it. In fact, we have much record of that being implied. But, but this thing he was doing, it says, of his own accord. And there's tremendous credibility when those who lead a church affirm a decision or a budget or a project. And, and when somebody, when, when New Testament giving is done, and there's more than just one person saying, yes, this is what we should do, that should give you a lot of confidence. And I think that's what Paul is trying to do for the church here. And this is why when you're leading, you want to surround yourself with the most godly and the most mature and the most wise and the most knowledgeable when it comes to the word of God. And in that respect, the most faithful to act on what the Word of God says. Okay? I'm not talking about the most popular. I'm not talking about the smartest. I'm not talking about the one who owns a business or, or you know, all of that. That's not, those are not qualifications to give, uh, to give verification that what's going on is what should be going on. You know, if you surround yourself with the most godly, the most mature, the most wise, the most knowledgeable, when it comes to the Word of God, and they're doing it, they understand the complex parts of the Word of God, and they're doing those things, see, those are the people who are going to know the mind of God. And that's what you want anyway, isn't it? And so these people are there, and, and these are the types of questions you want to ask when you think about appeals for giving. And, and this is the type of questions you need to ask when there's outside appeals for giving. See? You know, outside appeals for giving had the same question. What kind of accountability do they have? Who else is connected with this, and what kind of life do they live? And listen, if we ask those questions more thoroughly, we would not be given to a lot of places we give, Okay? And the people who are fleecing the flock all over the place wouldn't be doing it because there would be accountability there and we would understand, there's no accountability there and we'd understand this is not where we should be giving, okay? Where's the money going? Who's in charge of it? And what kind of people are they and how do they regard the word of God? See? And so he says, hey, Titus, you know Titus and he's all for this. So those questions should be crucial to your involvement. Is the person who's overseeing this discerning? Do they handle the word of God with care? Are they invested in the ministry? You know, because remember, Paul had been undermined by false teachers, those who sow discord, those who sow disunity, you know, those who refused to do things that they should have done. When he corrected them, they wouldn't listen. And no doubt people would try to undermine Paul's efforts here as well. You know, he's going to come and do this, and they're going to say, oh, you know, disunity, disloyalty, backbiting, you know, uh, towards Paul still happens today. And this is, this is one of the reasons why this collection from Corinth had paused for a time, because they... They were backbiting him and, and not respecting him. They didn't do what they, they should have done. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. But even now, this current time in Paul's ministry, some might say of Paul, you know, how, how do we know Paul's burden and his vision for this project is our burden and our vision? I mean, I know Paul is concerned about the church of Jerusalem. How do we know that's what we should be involved with, see? Or, or who does Paul answer to? I mean, he always says stuff like, I received this from God or, you know, uh, what I'm giving you, I receive from Jesus, and, and uh, you know, I give my opinion to you in this matter. And we've looked at all those phrases, and you understand that they are legitimate. But you can see the church saying, you know, this is, it's kind of hard to check on that, right? I mean, I, what I'm going to give you, I got from Jesus. Well, we can't ask Jesus, so how do we know? You know, I give my opinion. Well, how do you know your opinion's right? Right? And those are legitimate questions to ask, okay? Of course, it's a, it's a critical church, so they're obviously going to act. And it's hard to check, so Paul brings Titus into the discussion. See, and I think this is really important. And when Titus got behind it of his own accord, it lent tremendous credibility to Paul's leadership. Titus is for this too, and you know Titus. Now, in the time remaining, just a few minutes, let's look at in this next few verses. They really confirm this principle of godly administration. It's a very practical here about how it's managed, right? Who's, who's in charge of it, and then how's it going to be managed? And, 
And, and so in verse 18, look there if you would, 2 Corinthians 8, 18, we have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread throughout all the churches, verse 19, and not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work. And this is principle 12. New Testament giving is managed with accountability. And so when you get this third person in there, you've got some accountability going on there. There's an accountability in the giving of it. Okay, and we saw that before. It's not just whatever. It's in relation to your actual resources and your choices, and you're making uh, proportional types of giving, okay? But here, you know, here it's the handling of it in the church or, or any appeal for giving outside the church. There needs to be accountability. And as a footnote, you know, the offering Paul collected is very likely large. So, you know, we looked at it in context, how big the need was in Jerusalem. So this is, a, this is an offering that's, that's large. It's been in collection for over a year. Multiple churches are involved with it. I'm sure it's, it's a large sum of money. Verse 20 calls it a very gracious gift. So, so with that in mind, and with the fact that Paul must be on guard against those who would complain and accuse, he gives these instructions. He says this, look at verse 18. We have sent along with him, who's him? Titus. So with Titus, we've sent along the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. So who is this person? Well, we don't know because it doesn't say. He's not named. But here's the thing, and you could guess, but I don't think that's important. The, the issue is this. He didn't need to be named in this context. Why? Because they knew immediately who he was talking about. This is a letter to the church. It's a very personal from Paul to them. And he says, this brother who's famed in the gospel is coming along too. They're going to say, oh, it's, and they filled the gap in. We don't know. We don't have to know. The issue is, what was this character like? See, obviously they'd immediately know who Paul was talking about. And, and very shortly, they would see him standing in front of them with Titus and Paul. So it wasn't going to be that long before they'd actually show up there and he would be delivering this letter and, uh, that we're reading and the instructions that we're reading and collecting the offering. He said, make sure you set it aside in, in uh, cha uh, chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, you know, so that I don't have to take an offering when we get there. And so he was well regarded by all the churches, obviously, a man who had preached the good news, the gospel widely to the churches, so they knew that. So it, it will not be just Paul, it won't be just Titus, it's going to be this person. It's another elder with an impeachable character as well as known as faithful and, and in all the churches well known as, as someone who teaches the gospel clearly. As we think about then, here's the thing, as we think about these three guys, and I think that's, this is Paul's emphasis here, it leads us to our next principle, and this is it. In the management of New Testament giving, that's really what we're talking about, as it comes in. It should always be the most trustworthy, the most qualified biblically. That's faithful elders and deacons who are put in charge of those things. Okay? Always should be that. And, and we have passages of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, which we won't go over right now. We're going to look at them. We're going to start with them next week. So you can kind of see who these, what the qualifications for people who do this are. And we won't go at length, but I will do it enough so that you get a, a snapshot of what that looks like. But that shows us objectively what, what we're talking about here. But it, this is very consistent teaching throughout the Old and New Testament. Right? And with these illustrations, we really begin to uh, kind of close this up. There's always a danger of fraud, and there's always a danger of misuse. For instance, um, if you think about Acts chapter 4, verse 34, and you could turn there, but I'll read it to you as well. And I'm just going to give you a snapshot of what's going on in the early church. This is early after the church, after Pentecost. The church is really growing. And, and it says in verse 34, For there was not a needy person among them. Well, why is that? Well, because the church in Jerusalem was meeting the needs of other people in the church of Jerusalem. And we talked about that before. If the need got greater, 
but uh, it says that for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale. It's not communism, not Marxism. It's what is it? I have some extra. Somebody has a need. I can give it. I know the Lord gives back. I know he, re- he rewards me back from what I give. Press down, shaking together and overflowing. This is not a big issue, okay? This is just you have something. Somebody has a need. You can meet it. You do, okay? Same thing we've said all along. And, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. So they're coming to the apostles. They're bringing this money in, uh, and they're saying, okay, just give it to whoever has need. And so these guys, that's, that responsibility is laid on these guys. And then it gives an example. It says, Joseph, the, uh, a Levite, a, a Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translates son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So there was need. He had something. He could sell it, no big deal. Why? Because everything that belongs to the Lord anyway, and he's the one that gave it to me, and, and there's some need, and we can meet it, okay? We don't need to make a big deal out of that. It sounds like a lot only because our mind is on material things and not on the things of heaven, okay? It sounds like it's over the top. That perhaps is the case. So the church grew and matured, and then you have this burden on the apostles who taught the word and later the elders who taught the word. And no doubt, it sells a track of land. This is a lot of money, and he's not the only one doing it. So people are bringing in good chunks of change, and it's just landing at the apostles' feet. And it happens over and over again. So it's not isolated because nobody had need because it was being met. So what's going to happen? Well, obviously, it's going to get to the breaking point. And so Acts chapter 6, verse 1 gives us an idea of what's going to go on. So church gets bigger. The needs are larger. People, some people don't have jobs anymore. Some people stayed in Jerusalem after Pentecost and go back to their home place because this is where it was happening and all of that. So there's all kinds of complex things going on. It's hard to manage a church of five or 6,000 now, let alone back in the first century. Okay, so a lot of, lot of effort. Now, verse 1 says this. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. So what are they doing? They're grumbling. Okay, there's something's going on. It's not right. Somebody's not getting what they deserve, whatever. Okay, it happens in the church. Everybody's got preferences. Everybody got needs, you know, and, and you got to make sure that they're known to everybody because the widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Verse 2, so the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. So they're like, man, this is a lot. You know, the apostles are doing the teaching and they're trying to gu- uh, guide the church and then all this money's coming in and they're like, we need some help. And so uh, what do they do? Well, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation full of the spirit and of wisdom. That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like the brother who's very known in the church, well-known in the churches. Uh, it sounds like a lot like Titus's reputation. So very similar reputations. What is it? Uh, men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we, we may put in charge of this task, verse 4, but, if we, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. Now, here they've appointed the precursor to deacons. You can't really say that was deacons because that wasn't the word used, but it's a pattern set up and it's followed later in the churches and they take over this administration in, uh, in serving those who have need. And Paul confirms later their official role in his pastoral letters and he calls them deacons, which is the term servant or table waiter, which is precisely what they were doing. They were making sure that people got what they were supposed to get to eat. And he just says, make sure that this happens. This, this, uh, we're dispensing what comes in. Make sure everybody's getting it. You can, you can really you know, focus on that and make sure it's happening. And they were seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom. And they're in charge of using these types of offerings to meet the needs of the widows and those without enough to survive. And, and in our passage this morning, the administration of, of this gift and the accountability for it so far is going to fall on Paul and on Titus and on an unnamed elder. And so he says in in, uh, verse 18, he says, For we have sent along with him the brother whose fame 
in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches, and not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work as well. And our passage continues to affirm that in the New Testament free will type of giving environment, you want administration and accountability with those who are most wise about the scriptures, and they read it and then they're doing it. They're faithful, godly, mature, knowledgeable men who discharge the work of God and the work of gospel faithfully. See, Paul says we choose this guy and the churches recognize this guy that he should be part of this work, not because he's most popular and not because he owned a business and not because he's been there a long time. Those are the three that almost, when I come to a church and begin to minister, almost always that qualifies why somebody's in a position of financial leadership. Or this, they're good with finances, so we'll, we'll stick them in there. I didn't read any of those things in there as qualifications for doing this. Or he's well off. Or he's an accountant. Or whatever. No, what's the, he was chosen because he was biblically qualified as a leader of the church. See? And we're going to see what that looks like next week. He was a leader, as a teacher of the gospel. The church has recognized his handling of the word of God and, and, and his words and his life. And so he was put there in charge of it. And he was qualified by the qualifications we find in those passages. And, and when that's the case, well, let's see, when, when you do that, you don't only have the Holy Spirit at work guiding those men, you have protection from false accusation. See, And so that's a question we always ask, even in outside giving. How are we protected from false accusation? See. And it's not because we don't trust people. It's because we don't want our adversary, the devil, to find a place where he can able, be able to falsely accuse someone because we're aware of his schemes. See, We don't want those who want to discredit the faith and, and the gospel and be able to find fault destroy what the Lord wants to build. And that happens often, doesn't it? And so we want to avoid that. So Paul just says, hey, we're going to take this offering, but it's not just me. Titus is all for it. And not only that, there's a guy who's going to come along. All the churches want him to come. He's well known before you. Godly life, he's going to be in charge of it too. And so these very practical verses, I think, as you look at them, I think, with, with the idea perhaps that Paul was bringing to it, helps us understand how we're to manage the things the Lord's loaned to us. All right, let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. That's all we have time for. We're actually a little over. I'm sorry. So let's bow and be dismissed and give this day to the Lord. Lord, we thank you today for our opportunity to be in the Word together. We thank you just uh, part of what the church has always done. Uh, it's always... Uh, come together and given. It's always come together and prayed. It's always come together and sang. It, it is, um, it's a marvelous thing to do and just continue to do. We don't have to be complex about it. It's a simple church. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, you'll just help us simply to take what your word says and begin to apply it. We, that's, how, that's how maturity is achieved. That's how we grow and, uh, as a believer as we just begin to apply and do the hard things you've asked us to do. And, and uh, as we do that, we, uh, we are pleasing to you. And as we handle what you've given us, it's not just whatever. Uh, you've given us some accountability and we begin to handle those things. We then are not like uh, the Israel of old. We are like faithful people who follow you and do what you say, whom you're well pleased with and can use in a continuing manner. So Father, help us to do it all the more as, as we saw Paul tell the Thessalonian church. And that we might be found faithful as we wait for your son's return. It is our desire to be uh, conforming to the image of Jesus, a reprint. We are looking forward to his return, perhaps very soon. And so, Lord, as we walk in this world, help us have a good testimony. As we walk out of this church, help us be faithful to give the gospel out so that others might know the good news, salvation that comes through Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection. We're so grateful for an opportunity to be a part of that. Help us not to forget that's our main job. 
and we give you praise today and all God's people said, amen.